Okay, guys, we're in um, Lesson 17. Now, for the last several weeks, almost a couple months, I believe now, we've been really talking about the whole Levitical system and how Jesus is so superior to the Levitical system. And uh, it's it's almost like it just seems to go on and on. He's hitting it from every direction, from the sacrifices to the priesthood and everything. It's It's been a long study so far, hasn't it, as far as that? Well, now we're getting into the halfway point of chapter 10, and he changes the subject. He's going to move on to something else now, because I think he's hit that enough now, and he's going to tell us that he's disgusted enough, and he's going to go on, and he's going to talk about the issue. Again, he's going to issue another warning. In the book of Hebrews, there are several warnings about turning away from the faith or apostatizing. We're not talking about you wrestling with doubt for a moment. We're talking about an active decision to deny the faith, to deny that Jesus Christ is adequate enough for your salvation, and you're just turning away, period. We're not talking about backsliding. We're talking about denying the very essence of Christianity and that Jesus Christ needed to die for your salvation. Denying that and going back with whatever the world says or for in this instance with because they were Jews going back to the Judaic system. And so he's basically going to be giving a warning about that again and then he's going to encourage us to persevere. Okay? So we're going to talk about apostasy and perseverance today. So... I want you to notice with me, we're going to look, first of all, at verses 19 through 25 of chapter 10. Look at what he says. Therefore, brethren, having the boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So notice, first of all, before he discusses the issue of apostasy, he's going to give an encouragement. So the writer, here's what he's doing first thing, the writer draws his argument to a conclusion after showing the sufficiency of Christ. That word, therefore, is like a concluding statement to everything that he talked about before then. And what did he talk about before then? How Jesus is superior to the Levitical system, to the sacrifices, to the priesthood of the Old Testament. So he's going to draw his argument to a conclusion here. So now he's going to talk in in, in the last part of verse 19, through verse 22, he's going to talk about the privileges that you and I have. Under the New Covenant. He's going to talk about certain privileges that you and I have as believers under the New Covenant. Privileges that you and I, especially as Gentiles, we never even had 
under the old system. Because remember, under the old system, were you even included in it? No. But now, in the new covenant, with the sufficiency of Jesus, you and I have certain privileges. So let's talk about them. Number one, because of the sacrifice, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have boldness to enter God's presence. That's the first privilege you have. The first and only privilege that, I mean, the, the most significant privilege that you have as a believer in Jesus Christ is that you have boldness to enter into the presence of God. Anywhere, anytime, period. You don't have to go through ritual. I know, uh, for instance, uh, the Catholic Church, you, you can go to a confessional and go through a mediator, which is the priest. You don't have to do that, okay? The writer of Hebrews is very clearly making the point that one of the privileges that you and I have is that we can enter boldly into the throne of grace. We can enter boldly into God's presence anytime. Anytime. You don't have to do ritual. You don't have to make sure you're clean enough. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, you can go to God anytime because He already did it for you. Did you understand what I'm saying? He already did it for you. Here's the other one. Jesus provided believers with a new and living way to access God's presence. He provided a new and living way to access God's presence. So talking about our approach there, he provided a new way. Because the old way, let me just stop for a moment. In the Old Testament system, if you were a Jew, you had to make sure that you were ceremonially clean. So depending on what you did would determine the type of sacrifice that you would have to make in order, first of all, to be ceremonially clean. You'd have to wash. Okay? There's nothing wrong with washing, but you had to wash in a certain way. All right? You had to do this and do that and, and make a sacrifice and buy a sacrifice here. You know, so you had to, in order to enter into God's presence, you had to make sure that you were ceremonially clean. Period. When Jesus comes along, he gives you a new way to approach him. And the new way is, is that it's all based on him. It's not based upon what you've done. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I've been reading I've been reading our book that we're going to be doing. I'm, I'm all the way up into the, I think, the 22nd chapter. And um, yesterday, as I was reading, uh, Murray made an interesting point. He said that, you know, if you're lacking in your prayer life, what we try to do is is overkill it to get back into sync. Like, you recognize that you don't go and pray to God as much as you need to. So what you do then is now you try to pray a lot. And so you go into hyperdrive. So instead of, you'll say, okay, I want to pray 30 minutes today. And you sit down and you pray five minutes and you pray for everything you think you know you need to pray about. You try to overdo it as if that's going to jumpstart your prayer life. And what he pointed out is that your prayer life is directly proportional to your spiritual life. And it depends on what your spiritual life is, period, as to how much you will pray. 
So we get it we get it backwards. So for instance, he made this quote, and if you got the app, you'll see I put it on there. Um, he says, "What determines your day? How your day will go? Spending five or ten minutes in prayer, or thinking all day long about worldly things? What's going to determine how you live your life?" So let me ask you, what's going to determine how you live your life? What you think on all day. You know what I'm saying? The essence of your Christian life is going to affect your approach. Okay? Your approach. And the wonderful thing about Jesus is, is that you don't have to beat yourself up because maybe you were lacking in an area and your life isn't what it should be. There's grace to pick yourself up and to go on now. Did you understand what I'm saying? There's grace through Jesus that you can go to him and say, God, I haven't been doing good. I haven't been doing right. I haven't been where I should be. I need your help. I want to move forward. Help me. You paid it for me. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness. Did you understand what I'm saying? Thank you for forgiveness. That's the approach. That's the privilege we have as believers. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Here's the other one. Here's our other privilege. We have Jesus Christ as our high priest over the household of God. I can't think of somebody better to be in your corner. Do you know what I mean? I can't think of somebody better to be there for you as you're trying to live your life in this world than to have Jesus Christ as your high priest. And here's what we know. We know from the New Testament scriptures that he lives, Hebrews tells us, he lives to make intercession for you. So he's waiting to intercede for you. It's not like a burden, oh, i got to pray for that guy again. Can't he get his act together? That's not Jesus. Do you understand? Now, we act that way, okay? Jesus doesn't act that way. He lives to make intercession. And he intercedes. First John tells us, chapter 2, he intercedes. He's our advocate. How many of you got somebody who's rooting for you, Ad, advocating for you? Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? He's our advocate before the Father. He sits on the right hand of the Father, talking about you. And it ain't bad. It ain't like, oh, I can't believe they did that again, you know. No, it's not that at all. Do you understand? What a privilege we have. For most of us, we have no clue. Let's just be honest. For most of us, we live our days, live our days out without any clue of what what God does for us or has done for us. Isn't that true? That's what He's trying to remind us of here. We have a high priest over the house of God. Now let's go on here. Notice now here. So then He He tells us our approach and and the privileges that we have here. So here's the encouragement. Here's what we need to do. Number one, we are to draw near to God with a true heart and the assurance of faith. All right, let me let me do an exercise here. How many of you want to grow deeper in your walk with Jesus? Just kind of raise your hand, okay? All right. I assume that there'd be everybody here, okay? How many of you though find that a struggle? Okay? All right. All right, everybody, that's good. Part of the struggle is is that we mess up, we sin. So how many of us 
We get discouraged by our sin and, and think that just sabotages us as far as going deeper with Jesus, right? Is that true? Okay. That's normal? Okay. That's normal. Now here, I have a true heart. I'm supposed to enter with a true heart. Now here's the assurance of faith. Here's what the assurance of faith does. This is why when you talk about wanting to grow deeper, even in spite of the fact that you are human and that you're going to fail, here's where faith comes in. Faith comes in, and the assurance of faith is is that I'm going to plug on because my standing with God and His plan for me and what He wants to accomplish through me and what He wants to do in my life has nothing to do with me. It has to do with what Jesus did for me. So I'm going to have faith in what He did for me and what He's going to do for me. Do you understand what I'm saying? The faith comes in, not just believing Him for your salvation, but believing Him for what He wants to accomplish in your life. In spite of you, because you're going to mess up. Did you understand what I'm saying? So I have a genuine heart. I want to long. To, I long to be with him. I want to be what he wants me to be. But I also recognize, man, I am a mess. But my faith isn't in me. My faith is in who? Jesus. Did you understand? That's what he's talking about here. That's the encouragement. Now, isn't that awesome? Now, think about it. If you took that, just that, what I just told you, and thought about that for a day and a half or two days or a week, it will change you. You see, because the enemy wants you to think it's all about your mess up, what you did wrong, and that's affecting everything. Yeah, it does affect your relationship with Jesus. Yeah, you are hurting him. But he gives it. It's not like he didn't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have the same God who exists past, present, and future. The God who is there when you're doing it is the God who's already 2,000 years ahead in the future. We exist in time. He doesn't. He already knew. He sees all of your lifespan. You don't know when you're going to die. He does. Did you understand what I'm saying? So my faith has to be in Him. That is that not an encouragement? Faith goes beyond simply just believing I got heaven later. Woo woo! Faith goes beyond that He's going to do a good work in my life and complete it. Now here's what else He does. Look at what He says here. Hold fast. Hold fast our confession. We're not to waver as we hold on to our faith in the hope that he has promised. So he's telling you, hold on. Because there's going to be times, I'm going to be honest with you, you know this, if you've lived long enough, you know this. There's going to be times when you're going to want to question whether or not you have enough faith to make it through the day, or the hour, or the next ten minutes. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it can't get any worse. I thought I've lived through enough already. Tell me that this isn't happening. Do you know what I'm talking about? And 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 you you just like, oh Jesus, are you even there? He's encouraging you here. Listen to me, he's encouraging you not to waver, but to hold on to your faith in Jesus, no matter what life is throwing at you. And it will. 
It'll throw it at you. And you don't know, it's like, it'll blow your mind. Hold on to your faith. Here's the, we're to consider others as we encourage, we are encouraged to love and good works. So again, I'm not going to be self-focused. The antithesis of Christianity is a self-focus. It's being totally focused on yourself and what your needs are and where you are, blah, blah, blah. That's the antithesis of Christianity, period. Christianity is you thinking about others as you are stirred on to love and good works. Pride is at the heart of all selfishness. Do you want to write that down? You need to. Pride, your personal pride, is at the heart of all selfishness and self-focus. Period. So he's telling us here, to consider others as we are encouraged to love and good works. To think beyond ourselves. To think beyond ourselves to where others are at and try to be there for them. Okay? So then, here's what he says, don't abandon the assembly. Now, we, you've heard this verse a lot. You know, if you forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, is what the old preachers would say. Well, yeah, don't abandon coming together as a church as some people do. All right, let me just stop for a moment. I got, I got to hit on that for a moment. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't need to go to church. I don't need church. I worship God anywhere. Yeah, you can worship God anywhere. We already know that. We already, he just talked about that. We can approach him anywhere. There's a new way. Yay. But when you say you don't need church, I can almost guarantee you, you got a wrong definition of church. Your definition of church is a service, listening to a talking head, and singing some songs. That's your definition of church. That is not the biblical definition of church. The biblical definition of a church is the assembly of believers together who function as a body, or another term as as a family, who are there for each other to encourage each other to pray for each other, and to be for there for each other as they are living out in the world and they're getting beaten up in the world. It's the one sanctuary that they can go to to encourage them for the week that's coming ahead. So I'm going to tell you right now, you do need church. You don't need the service, but you need the interaction with other believers to encourage you because we just talked about it. Life will throw it at you, won't it? Do you know what I'm saying? You need to know that there's a family who will be there who cares for you. Did you understand what I'm saying? So don't abandon coming together as some people do. Uh, by the way, verse 25 is not a suggestion. If you want to write this down in your notes, it's a command. He's not making it a so oh, by the way, you just want to make sure you're here every week. Don't don't forsake each other. You know, some people do, you know, just no no. He's very adamantly telling you 
You need to be here. You need to be with the assembly of believers. Now, why would you say, I don't know that I agree with that, George. You need to understand the writer influenced by the Apostle Paul. Some people believe it is the Apostle Paul. If you understand Pauline teaching, you'll understand very clearly that every part of the body is necessary for the functioning of the whole body. So let me ask you something. How many of you here can live without your liver? Let's say your liver decided, I ain't giving up, getting up this week. I'm going to go on a hiatus. I'm going to go out in the woods and worship there. You don't need me today. How many of you can live without your liver? First of all, it would be kind of hard for it just to leave. But let's say it decides it doesn't want to work anymore. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It, how about if your mouth went on a strike and it wouldn't open up for anything, even the most favorite food that you love to eat? You know what I'm saying? The point is, is that we are all necessary for the functioning of the body. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Meaning, some people, well, I don't do anything here. I'm not a teacher. I don't have a role here. Again, wrong definition of church. Wrong definition of church. Your definition of church has to do with a structure, has to do with positions, has to do with all of that. That's not. They, you know, they didn't have Sunday school teacher in the old in the New Testament. It was people ministering together, living, to, being there for each other. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So we're not to abandon coming together as a church, as some people do. And why? As the time of Christ approaches, it's important to meet as a church. Hey, um, are things getting better? I heard some chuckles. Things getting better? No. You need the church. Because the church needs you, and you need the church to carry on, to persevere in your walk with Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? You need the church, the church needs you. Now again, when I say church, I'm not talking about the corporate identity which is Kerbinsville Christian Church. I'm not talking about the building that was dedicated in 1950. Okay? I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about who? The people. And let me just say this. If you're not convinced in your heart, if you say, well, you know, I don't know if I agree with that, Jordan. Yeah, you know, yeah, sure. Well, whatever. That's not. You need to ask God to do a deeper work in your life. Because I've been there. And the reality is, is that all of us need to understand what true church is. And to be a part of it. And to allow God, allow us to be a part of it. Okay? So that's the other one. So don't us to abandon the assembly. Now look at verses 26 through 31. He's going to talk about the issue of apostasy. For if we sin willfully after we have re- after after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you suppose will he 
be thought worthy who trampled the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant by which he was by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. All right, let's talk about the outcome of apostasy. This is, again, choosing to go on. All right? First thing is, the word sin here refers to the abandoning abandoning one's faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some of the Wesleyan tradition, some of the holiness movement, will take verse 26 and say it's talking about any sin. If you sin willfully, there's no more forgiveness. Okay? How many of you have heard that before? All right? Good. I'm glad you have it. All right? Because this is the group that would say you lose your salvation. All right? The sin he's talking about here is not the sins that you and I commit every day. All right? Because you understand... Even the writer himself would be in jeopardy. Because the writer is not perfect, even though he's being led by the Holy Spirit to write this. Because the writer sins. Alright? The word sin here refers to abandoning one's faith in Jesus Christ. Alright? It's abandoning. It's walking away from the faith. So, here's what he's saying. The writer is stating that there is no forgiveness for apostasy. You know, I hear people all the time saying, the sin under death. Have I committed the sin under death? Have I committed the sin under death? How many of you have heard that before? Okay. The sin unto death, any sin that, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is unbelief. And for a believer who has said, oh, I embrace it, but then turn away and walks away from it, never to go back again, there is no forgiveness. There is no such thing as an unbelieving believer. I'm just going to be flat out honest with you. Now, some of you may disagree with me because, you know, in your teaching you've heard, well, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, you have to go by what the text says, not what your feeling is. Because our gut feeling is, is we want to say that everybody, hopefully everybody will make it. Especially if they pray to prayer at some time. But the reality is, is if somebody turns away from the faith and denies it, and becomes antagonistic towards it, and lives that way for 20, 30 years until they die, they're not saved. Do you understand? There's no forgiveness. We need to understand that. Okay? We need to understand that. There's no forgiveness for apostasy. That's what he's saying here. Here's the other thing. The writer states that only the only certainty for the apostate is eternal judgment. That's the only thing that's certain for the apostate. You cannot get away from the way the language flows out of this text. He's saying, verse 26, that there is, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. There remains no more forgiveness. And then he goes on in verse 27 and says that there is a certain expectation, a fearful expectation for somebody who apostatizes. And that is, look at what it says there, of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. This is what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about here. 
He goes on. The writer points out that the rejection of the first covenant results resulted in death. So he's going to give us an illustration. He's going to give us an illustration from the Old Testament, from the first five books. And that is, is if you rejected the law of Moses, on the testimony of two witnesses, the law required that you would be stoned, that you would be killed. That was the law. That was the first covenant. Now, now he's saying, hey, we're under the second covenant, though. What's the scoop there? Here's what he's saying. There is a greater judgment for the rejection of the new covenant. There's a greater rejection for the rejection of the new covenant. Hey, you know the people that say that everybody's going to make it, there's going to be a second chance in heaven. Can I be honest with you? How can you get past the text when it tells you no? That if you reject him now, there is no more chances. Period. And here's what he says. God will judge. You need to understand who God is. The writer states that we understand that God will judge the wicked. Yes, he's a loving God. But he's also a just God. And he's a holy God. And then the writer warns that it is a fearful thing to stand before God. Now, if you if you got your own Bible, if you want to make a mark, I would I would encourage you to put a star by verse thirty one because sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Even as even though we ha- we we believe in the the new covenant, we embrace the new covenant. There is the forgiveness of that. But sometimes, can I be honest with you? I think we need to remember that we're not dealing with Bubba. Do, do you know what I mean by that? When we talk about God, yeah, God's your friend, but he ain't Bubba. Do, do you know what I'm saying? He's God. And it is a fearful thing to stand in the presence of God. And we need to be reminded of that. Do, do you know what I'm saying? He's not Bubba. So he goes on in verse 32 to 39, he talks about perseverance. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by the reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plunderings of my goods, knowing that you had a that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great rewards. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Okay, so we got six things we're going to look at here about perseverance. Number 1, remember how you endured suffering after you came to faith in Jesus. Have you noticed that? When you tell somebody that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, do you notice that people don't get excited about that? Have you noticed that? You're excited about your Jesus, but not everybody's excited about your Jesus, are they? 
you all of a sudden you begin to notice that people treat you differently. That's becoming more and more evident in our culture now, as we become more and more secular, and we are, and we're going to continue to be. He's saying, hey, do you remember when you endured suffering when you came to Christ? People aren't going to be happy. Do you remember that? All right? This is the struggle that the American church has, is that we want to be accepted by everybody. That's not going to happen. That's not been the history of the church. Okay? Let's go on. They understood what it meant to be publicly shamed and supported as well. So they understood what it meant to be publicly shamed. But they also understood what it meant to be supported as well. Here's, you know, again, they had shown compassion to the writer and endured having their prophecy confiscated. Do you understand? For the simple reason, because they're followers of Jesus Christ. And so here he's saying they've persevered even to the point of, you know, they've had compassion on the writer when he was suffering, but they've also endured what? The confiscation of their own goods. Here, they've endured because they knew they had a better possession in heaven. Here's how they can hang on. Here's how, even in spite of the world getting tough, even in spite of the world getting bad, they held on to a hope for something better. That's the source of perseverance, folks. See, that's going to get you through the stuff that you go through in your life. That's going to get you through the crisis of a health issue in your family or in your own in your own life. That's going to get you through whatever the crisis that's going on. It will get you through persecution and stuff. That your hope isn't in this world. Your hope is in something better later on for eternity. Can I be honest with you? That's what's been missing from the church communicating to in the last 20 years in this country. Think about that. Think about that. When you listen to some preacher on the radio, you know, 10 steps to having a happy home. 10 steps to having a greener lawn in Jesus. Did you know what I'm saying? How to beat your kids 10 different ways to... To ensure in harmony in your home. I mean, seriously, it's been mamsy-pamsy type preaching where we've left out a theology of suffering, that suffering is a part of being a believer, and how to endure. How to endure. We've, we've, we're, we want to be comfortable, but you, you're not going to be comfortable in this world. Because here's, how the, here's how, the, how the scripture describes you and I as pilgrims and sojourners, strangers in this world. Pilgrims, sojourners, and strangers. Do you understand? So he goes on here. So he says, hold on. The writer urges his reader not to give up on their faith. Hold on. You hold on. You endure. Think about it this way. When you think of eternity and the foreverness of eternity, Eternity with Jesus in heaven. What's this life in comparison to it? It's just a blip. A nanosecond. Did you understand what I'm saying? A nanosecond. And so here's what he says. They need strength to endure as they wait on the promise. 
God, give me strength to endure today as I wait on you, as I hold on for you. Give me strength to endure. Give me strength to endure. All right, next week, it's going to be, he's going to talk, you know, when we talk about that strength to endure, he's going to look at the issue of faith because it is faith that carries you on through the stuff that you go through. So we're going to go to chapter 11 next week. We're going to do all of chapter 11. We may have to take two days for it. But we're going to do all of chapter 11. And chapter 11 is the great faith chapter. Is that If you've known, studied, you've heard people say that chapter 11 is the faith chapter. And so we're going to look at the lives of those saints there and how they held on to faith in God in spite of the things that they went through. And the encouragement of the, for us, even in spite of the stuff that we go through. So we're going to look at that next week.